What's up, y'all? Today's episode of Order Within was a deep dive. I'm talking with Lindsay Hotmeyer, the founder of Storyhouse 15, and we get in the weeds on a lot of different things. Lindsay's a very interesting person in her ability to think about a wide variety of topics and engage with depth and intention, something that's lost in our society in many ways today. We talk about Lindsay's journey as a mother to four kids, balancing work, life, We also talk about Plato's cave allegory and how that relates to modern times of what we see as truth or not truth and the inability for us to have conversations in our world today and how we struggle as thinkers and people because we don't take the time to think about life and the world around us and what matters to us and the values that we hold. Lindsay is a testament to living true to your values She was married at a very young age of 19 and is still currently married to the same man. Their values as a couple and the way they chose to raise their family, the way they lived their life, the way they honored one another and ebbed and flowed during challenging times as we all face in marriages and life, the way that they've chosen to support one another and their commitment to their family is incredible. Lindsay is in my eyes, the type of mother and wife that many can aspire to be. And as men, finding women and partners that are dedicated to their values, that think about these things, are so important as we decide and determine who we want to spend our lives with and who we want to raise families with. These are not light topics that can be ignored. And if we don't take the time to think about what matters to us, why we're here, and what type of family we're going to have with someone, we can easily get sucked into to a scenario that doesn't reflect who we are. The conversation was a lot of fun. Lindsay is a very deep thinker, and it's clear that she spent much of her life enjoying literature, books, and thinking and writing and communicating in the work that she does because it really stands out in this conversation. So I hope you all enjoy it. With that being said, let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to Order Within, navigating a world of endless chaos and crisis. Many of us are experiencing inner turmoil, insecurity, anxiety, fears, and isolation. These feelings are only being amplified by news cycles, social media, and never-ending political madness. How do we find our way out of the chaos? How do we find strength within ourselves? How do we find meaning in a world driven by materialism? These questions and many more I aim to answer on the show. My goal is to be a trusted guide on your journey to selfhood. May you find what you seek. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Brandon Ward, back with another episode of Order Within. Today, we've got another fantastic guest. Lindsay Hotmeyer is joining us. She's a clarity coach, brand storyteller, podcaster, mother, wife, Midwesterner, and founder of Storyhouse 15. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Brandon. I'm really looking forward to where this conversation is going to go. I know. I'm excited. I, I love your background and what you've been doing and where you, how you got into what, what you're doing. And so we're going to dive into all that. I think for me, 
what's interesting about being a podcaster, you're a podcaster yourself. You get these opportunities to talk to really brilliant people who are doing interesting things. And I think sometimes what I love about this is it's, it's equalizing a lot of accessibility that we have to experience and perspectives. Because from my position, I think we overvalue sometimes these experts or people that have all this insane uh, educational merits or go to elite schools. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but there's a lot of wisdom and value in individuals who are living authentic lives, true to who they are. They understand their values and they prioritize those values. For me, that's how I define success. Not being famous, not necessarily making a bunch of money. All those things are okay if you value those things. But so what stood out for me is you seem to have done a lot of work around structuring your life around your values because you're a mother, a wife, you're an entrepreneur now. So I'd love to, if we could kind of get into, because you were a, a stay-at-home mom for 10 years, right? Yeah, I, I, I was out of the full-time workforce for a decade, raising, having and raising four babies. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. That's a lot. Like, and, and it's funny because my mom or my mom, my wife is my mom. Geez, my wife <laughs> has done that for a couple of years with our little one. We've she's also got her. She started a blog uh, almost two years ago whenever she became a mother. But she was before we had a child. She was a big into the workforce. She worked in the spa industry. And so I it's a it's a noble and honorable merit and path to take. But it can also create a lot of, it can create a big void if you come from a professional background, right? So I'm curious, 10 years is a long time. That's a decade. Mm -hmm. Was that challenging for you to, to leave the workforce and to come into being a, a stay-at-home mom for a decade? What, what, like, what were some of the early maybe challenges you faced as you, as you decided to do this? Yeah, you know, it wasn't, I wouldn't say that it was challenging because that was kind of always my goal and my plan. Like I knew when if I if I was able to be a mom and I was able to step into that gift of motherhood, that I wanted to be the one home every day doing the things with them. And so I actually started out my career in 1999 as a high school English teacher and just did that for about three years before baby number two was on the way. And I was like, you know what? Teaching is not the thing for me. And so it just makes the most sense now for this to be the time where I step out of the workforce. You know, I was married really young. I was married at 19, which I was back in 1997. And in the Midwest, that was still pretty considered pretty young, but not like shocking like it would be today. You know, if my mm. daughter had come to me at 18, 19 saying she was going to get married, I'd be like, uh, let's, let's, let's back up for a moment. <laughs> but, um, Still married to that man today, so it was it was a, a successful decision. Um, but because of congratulations, that, we were, by the way, thank you. We were yeah. kind of able to define and grow our lives together, and that's something that we kind of committed to and have done in these twenty six, twenty seven years, or however long it's been. And so it was just it that decision to step out wasn't really scary to me at the time because I wasn't thinking about wh what's next. Like I wasn't really thinking about my, my professional career, like being sacrificed because that was, this was the decision that I was making. 
And when it was time to step back in, I did think, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? Like I've Mm. spent a decade, I've spent basically my entire early adult life, you know, being a mom and not really figuring out who I am as a person and as a career professional. So how do I have the skills? Who am I to step into this space now? What am I going to do? Um, and so that was a little hard from an, an identity perspective as far as who am I now? Um, mm. So, yeah, I guess that's that's a bit about my motherhood journey. Well, <laughs> it, to your point, a lot a lot of people now when they turn 19, start their career and, and you became a wife, a mother very early. Right. That's to your right. point. I mean, that that is very un. It's more uncommon now. I know in, in the Midwest, the values are a little more centered around marriage, which is great. That's, mm-hmm. I think that's also part of, I'm sure that's probably why you love still living there. That's something you seem to be very proud of is where you're from. Mm-hmm. We live in, we moved to North Carolina from California. I, I'm originally from West Virginia. So I, I resonate with that message, that vibe. Just it's, it's so important, I think, that we select the communities and the spaces that we live in that resonate with the values we have because there's just, it's easy to get caught up in the world around us and it can create a lot of unhappiness if we're not living in a place that aligns with our values. And so kudos to you for doing that and and holding true to that and also for making a marriage work for 20 plus years at 19. That's, you know, that's it's because to be married and you know, this requires a level of maturity. You've got to be mm-hmm. able to reflect on yourself. The fact that you and your husband started your journey together with a values assessment and, and really deciding on what you wanted to do is is crucial. My wife and I did a very similar thing. And it's interesting because she read a book before we got married from a divorce attorney. And he hmm. talks about all the common things over his, you know, 30 years or whatever it was of being a divorce attorney, seeing these common roadblocks. And then he created a workbook to help couples prior to getting married. And the whole workbook is built around your values, what matters to you, who's going to work, how are we going to discipline the kids, do we go to church, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And because it's surprising to me how many people get married or get in long-term relationships and they never have these conversations until they're married. So Absolutely. For, so what was it for you all at a very young age? And I'm curious, is your husband the same age as you? Were you all high school sweethearts or did you meet? We were, we've been together since I was 15. Um, he's, he's a year and a half older than me. He was just a year ahead of me in school. Um, and so we tracked through high school, through college together, through master's and PhD programs. But yeah, so you were, you were going to ask something, I guess, before I continue. Well, I was curious. No, that's, no, that's great. So does he have a PhD? Do you have a PhD? He he does. does. Yep. He, he, um, earned a PhD back in 20, 2014. Um, Very cool. So he's a he's in higher ed now. He started out as a college professor, is now dean. But you know that was wow. something. You know, back to my my discussion about us kind of committing to growing together. And so when he was in his PhD program, I was in a master's program, and it just has always been an in, intentional commitment to to either get behind the the other and push them forward or to be the one forward. Like it's your turn now go, or I'll step back Mm. so you can do this, but we're in this together. And when, before he entered his PhD program, 50% of people in PhD programs wind up divorced because those programs are so intense and so hard, especially when he was going through them. There are some now that are a little 
easier to trek through, I think, because of the, the online world. But true PhD programs are really intensive, really hard, really demanding. And so we had four kids. He's trekking through this program. And so before he started, it was a, Lindsay, if I'm going to do this, this is a we decision. This isn't just a me decision. And so we made that decision together because we knew that there were going to be moments where he was ready to quit. And I would have to say, uh, no, or moments where I was just done. Like I'm, I'm done. You not being available. You always going to work. He was working full-time in a full-time PhD program. So it was, it was a lot on me of, of keeping everything afloat with the kids in the, in the home. And so there were times where I was just like, forget this. I'm over this. And him <laughs> saying, we made this decision together. And so it was always us reaching down, pulling the other up to say, we're on this path and look, we're almost done. Like there's the end. We know where the end is. Like we, we've already established where we're going next. And that has just been our MO, I guess, for the last 25 plus years of how we tackle things, which I really feel is a microcosm of how things really should work in the broader world. They don't too often, but whether it's an organization, a culture, a society, that's how it should work. And if it did, and when it does, that's when you have healthier cultures. Nothing is ever going to be perfect. Things are always going to break, need, need to be fixed. But when there is a shared vision and a shared moral compass to, to achieve that vision, that's when you can be successful. And that's amazing because it, you all uncover that early on in your relationship, growth, the commitment together to make decisions as a unit. That's such, there's so much wisdom in that because I think sometimes in relationships and marriage and life, we get so focused on ourselves and what we want. We forget the importance, especially when you get married, how it's a, it's a team effort. I mean, my wife and I, like we prioritize our marriage above even our parenting. Now, it doesn't mean we, we love Absolutely. our child. But the right. marriage is the house with which the parenting lives within, right? Absolutely. And so I love that you all are living that path because it's it's shown how powerful it can be. And that's another component too is the ebb and flow of one person's doing well, the other one may be struggling, and you're reaching back and pulling each other up and reminding mm -hmm. we're in this together. We made this decision together. And that was one of the big things in that book I was mentioning earlier that stood out was ultimately you've got to realize that you're a team, you're a unit, you got to make decisions together. You got to mm -hmm. have each other's backs for, for us being faith-driven people too. We, we see that as that union, right? That allows mm -hmm. you to, to support and build your home and build from. And if we do that, we honor our marriage, then everything else will come from that as it does. And it sounds like yep. that's what you all have been Absolutely. living true to as well. And to know that or to start operating from that level at such a young age is is really wild. Honestly, it's it's rare. It's also in, super encouraging to me that that's the way you all did it. Was that, did you all have good models in your life as, as younger kids? Like are your parents for, for both of you all? Yeah, we did. We are, uh, we are both really, really lucky that, yeah, we both came from two parent households. Um, mm. long marriages. My husband's family, I always joke and I'm like, you're the leave it to beaver family. Like everything was perfect <laughs> for generations beyond. 
My family wow. really, I feel like a first generation family. My parents both grew up out of severe dysfunction, alcoholic absentee fathers. Mm. Um, the fact that my parents are are still married 50 plus years later is, I, I feel truly a miracle. You know, they raised four daughters um, wow. and just really went against the direction of the legacy that their fathers had created for them. You know, abusive fathers to their wives or to their mothers. So I I watched my parents really create a new story for their family, for themselves, for their marriage, for their children, and saw that journey and really the rocky road that they had to traverse in order to to do that. But nonetheless, I still came out of a stable home. So yes, we had that that display of what it means to love your children children well, to love one another well, and what that looks like to stick through it, even when it gets hard. Um, Especially when it gets hard, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And what's amazing about that, Lindsay, is your your parents broke the cycle. Your your husband's side had already had this incredible momentum from what you're describing. It sounds like generations of of loving families, which is such a rare thing mm-hmm. in, in the world now. And but to commend your parents for the work that they would have to go through, knowing that both of them came from dysfunctional, broken homes, mm-hmm. because you don't. It's impossible not to learn bad behaviors when you're raised in an environment like that. I, I mean, I, I was raised in a broken home. There was, you know, the abuse, alcohol abuse, fit, just a, a variety of things. I was a mess through mm-hmm. through my 20s into my 30s because I had to heal a lot of this madness that I learned. And mm-hmm. But so it's it's an incredible accomplishment for your parents to have overcome that and then do their own healing to then model for you and your three other sisters. They had, you have four, four total kids. Mm-hmm. That's it's I incredible. Yeah. I love that. And does everybody live in the Midwest? Um, up until a few years ago. Yes. I have a sister who now lives in South Carolina, but, um, she went to where it was warmer. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's not a bad move. Always. The Carolinas no. are nice. can say. Yes, they are. For sure. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Lindsay, so you've started out as an English teacher. So you stayed home, though. Like how you got educated. Did you go into to English teaching one, after you were a stay-at-home mom? That's the timeline. No. So I got married at 19 between my sophomore, junior year of college. So I was married those last two years of college. And then once Ben graduated a year before I did, he was also a teacher. And so once once I graduated, we moved back home to where we grew up, both got teaching jobs. And so I taught for a year before I got pregnant with our oldest. Yeah. And then went to part-time, you know, taught for a few hours every day. And then when I got pregnant with number two, that's when I was like, yep, nope. I don't think generally as a teacher married to another teacher, the payoff, it's it's not quite, it doesn't often make economic sense to keep working and have two kids in daycare, right? It's like, why don't I just stay home? And so it was a pretty easy decision. It's not like I was leaving behind a six-figure income or Ben and I both grew up in pretty solidly middle-class homes. And so we weren't, we didn't have high expectations of needing to live in the 
this brand new home at 22, 24 years old or having to drive the newest car. We knew what it meant to live simply. And I guess that was our value system and it still really is. Like we aren't a, we aren't materialistic. We don't, we love nice things, but we don't, that, that's not what drives us at all. You're not defined by those things. It, nice things are right. great to have, right? But they don't define who you are. Absolutely. Which is awesome. So growth, family, connectedness, learning, like these are values that are, are trickling through your, your timeline here mm-hmm. and your story. So you've at kid two, you decide to stay home. That makes sense. You're if you're not, I get that, you know, one of you isn't some high figure executive or sales mm-hmm. rep or whatever. It makes, it makes sense to, to step back. So did you took over and you did that for 10 years. So you had a couple more kids along the way. What's I the did. gap in your children's age? I had all four kids in six years. And so they're like anywhere from two and a half years apart to 18 months. So wow, it was, it was crazy. (laughs) You, yeah, that takes some strength, some serious strength, but you you were driven to love with it, right? I'm sure it's, it sounds, you knew that from an early age though, you wanted like that. And I'm, I'm sure Mm -hmm. that your family life inspired some of that having three other sisters. It sounded like you had a great family growing up based on what your parents had learned and and taught you. And so you wanted to create your own version of that. Is that kind of, is that what was inspiring you? Yeah. Yeah. And we had this grand plan to, you know, we had been together since we were 15. So by the time I'm 23, having our first child together didn't feel like that quick of a thing to do, right? Well, that's eight years, um, right? Before you even right, have time to yourselves, right. really. Exactly. And so our our grand scheme, which seemed so smart at the time, was to be done having children by the time I was 30, which I did. I had our last child when I was 29. Because we were like, we want to be young parents and oh, how awesome. And we'll be 50 and we won't have kids at home. And now that's, you know, I'm 46 and we're like, what? why didn't we just start having children like maybe 10 years ago? That would have been the thing to do. Like now they're, now they're all going to be gone and we're so young. What are we going to do with the rest of our lives? <laughs> so so. It's, it's foresight, right? You never know. Like you get this in the yeah. moment. You're like, oh, wow, this is a great plan. And you wait a second. But the good news is the upside is, is if your children get married and start having kids of your own, you all will be really young grandparents. True. So you'll be able to True. start it right over again if that, yeah. if that ends up happening. Yeah. Or did you also have all daughters or do you have a mix? Nope. I have a daughter uh, and then three sons. Oh, so it was almost the reverse. Yes. Yeah. Interesting how it goes. Some families are split. It's all daughters. Sometimes it's all boys. It's it's very interesting. So what was that like then for you? You grew up with other sisters. You Now you have three boys you have to raise. Was that, was that challenging? I'm sure it was fun. It was challenging. Probably a lot of different things. It was things, a blast. Huh? Yeah, yeah, it was a blast. My daughter and I are super close. She's 23. She got married in July. So it's really fun to become best friends with your adult children. And our sons just are are great. They're so much fun. You know, I always said when they were growing up, girls play with toys the way that they were created to be played with and boys don't at all like you know they'll take they'll take whatever and figure out how to they'll take this nice little uh, playhouse and figure out how to dismantle the whole thing and turn it into something else entirely um 
But a, gr- so- a girl will take a doll and play with it and feed it or do tea time yes. because that's the way you're, it's like they're supposed to do yes. it. As a, and a boy will find it any other way but that to play yep. with it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's- so that was, it's just been fun. Like I can't imagine the family dynamic being anything other than what it has been. It's been great. That's awesome. Well, Lindsay, I know that, so it sounds like a big piece of this was aligning your life to your values, knowing what your values were, having a supportive partner with you along the way. But I know there has to, there had to have been some challenges along the way. You, you spoke to some of that. Your husband's in a PhD program. You've got four kids at home. What were some of the things that were able to help you through that? I know you mentioned you have a great relationship with your husband, which I'm sure was a big part mm-hmm. of it. But were mm-hmm. there any other things that helped you during those times when you were struggling? Yeah, I think for me, it's having the tools to think through what's going on and to really parse apart what's happening, why am I feeling this way, what are some ways to step into the world and move through it. Having those tools, like I'm I'm a big thinker, you know, and so I might dig into philosophy and really really think, okay, and like now I understand why this concept is really important or really having for, for us, I would say, and then this has become a huge piece of my work is really understanding our, my worldview, how I step into the world, how I move through it. The three questions of worldview really center around why am I here? What's gone wrong in my world and what do I need to do to fix it? Those are really the three primary questions of any worldview. And, you know, at 20, I didn't know all of this, but what I know now about the whole concept of worldview is every single one of us has a worldview. We're all stepping into it with a frame, with a a lens of how we see the world. And that's informed by our own lived experiences, by the culture around us. And most of us don't take the time to really understand what that worldview is, why we believe the things that we believe, like we hold these values. Why? Like, where do those come from? And just because they've been handed to me, do I really believe that? Is that, are those the tools I want to use to move through the world? And so for me, that singular tool of worldview and understanding, how am I uniquely called to move through my world and why am I doing that has been such a pivotal thing for me and being a wife, being a friend, a mother, and being a professional. And it is a one of the biggest tools that I use with my clients be, because of that fact that we all have one, but research shows most of us don't understand it. We just inherit our beliefs, our, our values, And we just accept that as is. But when we really take the time to understand it, that's when we really have that sense of self-knowing. And then we can know others better. And then we can understand what our moral obligations to the world are. And that's how we move through the world authentically. Oh, I love that. So it was self-reflection was a huge part of that for you. Understanding who you were. You spent time thinking and pondering what matters to you. And that three-question framework, was that something that you learned about? Because I know you were an English teacher, so I'm sure that you did study some philosophy and, and thinkers and things of that nature. So was that something you were always drawn to? I'd say at least through college, yes. You know, that's probably when I really awakened to, oh, there's this 
this thing of worldview and this is kind of how it works. This is how you discover it. These are the things that you need to think through when you're really thinking through it. True confession, I'm an any I'm an Enneagram four, Myers Briggs personality type, INFJ. So by design, I am a thinker. I'm going to always retreat to the dark spaces of of the world and really think, why is it like this? And why do I feel this way? Like I'm very comfortable in the tension and in the dark and with my thoughts and feelings. Like if you would take that away from me, I think I would cease to exist. And so, <laughs> yes, I've always been one to like look up at the sky and be like, huh, let's think about why this is here. I can remember my dad telling a story of my grandfather stepping up to the ocean. He lived in California and then in Mexico. And why did this wave stop right here at this moment in time? And just kind of joking about that, my dad joking about that and me thinking, I totally understand that thought. Like that's exactly mm-hmm. how I'm wired. So I love that. <laughs> well, I can relate. I'm an INFJ as well. I've spent many, a, I can remember growing up in West Virginia, laying in my backyard, just pondering the stars, pondering our yes. existence, yep. wondering why we're here, what what this is all about. <laughs> and I, I love that. So this this got activated when you were in school, you're studying, you're learning about these things. Where was it that you, was it just a variety of thinkers? Was there a specific thinker that stood out to you that helped frame your worldview perspective? Was it a teacher that you had? Mm -hmm. So I went to a small liberal arts school in the Midwest called Taylor University. It's a um, small private liberal arts school. And so everything about that school was centered around helping you figure out how to step into the world with your faith and with your brain. It was the intersection Mm. of faith and knowledge. And how do we step into the world and move through it with those two things? How do we be relevant, powerful, impactful professionals while at the same time holding true to what we believe is true? And so every class that I had, every paper that I wrote, every piece of literature that I read was was thought through with that lens of faith. And that didn't mean that we saw things in a fluffy, soft way or (laughs) hyper-spiritualized everything at all. But it was, how do we think through this from this broader perspective of our conviction that, that we were called here for a very expressed purpose? And so how do we look at this truth there and not be afraid of it? How do we look at this scientific proof or truth and not be afraid of it because we recognize that God has created all truth. And even if it's scary, we don't have to denounce it as true. We don't have to run away from it. Um, And so that was the kind of the academic lens that I was given uh, to be able to confidently say, this is who I am. And it doesn't diminish me. It doesn't make me less intelligent. It doesn't make me small. It actually equips me to stand firm in my convictions and my beliefs, while at the same time, really being able to step into the world in a powerful, relevant way. Um, so were there thinkers? I c- I can remember reading a book. It was called How Now Shall We Live? It was inspired by theologian Francis Schaeffer. Um, Mm. But it was written by two apologists, Chuck Colson and Nancy Pearson. Chuck Colson is now dead. He was actually part of the Nixon administration during Watergate. Wow. And went to prison for that and found faith in that, founded a a really influential ministry called Prison Fellowship. 
but wrote this book. And I would say that that was probably my first exposure to my first maybe in-depth exposure to this concept and idea of worldview. Mm. And there are things in the book now that I would probably look back through and say, mm, I'm not sure that that rebuttal to this is quite accurate. But it was written probably in the early 90s, maybe. Mm. Um, but then other thinkers like Anne Lamott then broadened my perspective. Um, even Donald Miller broadened my perspective and met me in a time where I was like, what do I really believe about all of these things? Writers like Toni Morrison. I did my my senior thesis on Toni Morrison, and she she... That was before the whole concept of critical race theory was like exploded I th because critical race theory happened, I think, first in the 70s is when it kind of first showed up on scene. So in the early 90s, when I was doing my senior thesis in undergrad, it was still a pretty new thing and mostly academic in the academic world. But it was Toni Morrison um, who her writings like awakened in me that the idea of the other and the same, which was a language that nobody was using in the mainstream at that time. And just really allowed me to step into the world with this empathic perspective of, of what it looks like to, to be the other or what it means to be the same. And so I, I guess top of my mind, those are few thinkers that really have impacted how I step through and move through the world. And yes, professors, even high school teachers who taught me early on how to really think and how to defend what you think, like go ahead and think whatever you want to think. You just have to be able to defend it. And so just some really powerful people on the way that really prioritize that value of thinking. Yeah, that's wonderful. I, I The power of thinking is incredible. It's changed my life. It's an incredible people don't realize it's a skill too. You develop the skill of thinking and how to, how to articulate your arguments or how to stand strong. Just as you were saying, you can have really any perspective you desire, but the importance of being able to articulate why you think that way and, and how you see things and challenge concepts. It's so powerful. And when you strengthen your thinking muscles, it enables you to do that in a clear way. And the beautiful thing about it is it allows you to resonate with others, as you said, in empathetic ways and also empower people who may not have that clarity of thought or have that clarity of perspective because you shared a few people just now that helped you see the world differently. I also love your perspective of faith, what you shared about how faith isn't this lofty, floaty, soft thing. I Because I share the same thing. Faith is... In, lift us through those moments to say, it's it's all right, we're going to find a way through this. We have gifts. We've been given these incredible minds, these this empathic nature that can allow us to feel and we can piece logic and all these things together to navigate these incredible truths that's been laid yeah. out in the world to discover. I, I love too the merging of that. The it's because spirit and science and they're they're really one and the same. They're just communicating about the universe in different ways. And I think as we uncover that and realize that as a species, that they're serving one another, that that they can play together in the sandbox and we can uncover incredible truths. And we've been given this dynamic beautiful universe to explore, to learn about ourselves, to learn about why we're here and all this. It's so epic. You know, we, we watch movies and we read stories 
But when you think about where we are and, and the structure and the organization of life itself, it's so epic, Lindsay, that we're right. a part of this. We're the players in this incredible story. Mm -hmm. So I, I love that that faith component is a big part of your journey. What an incredible school Taylor sounds like. That sounds, did you it say is. Taylor University? Yeah. That's, it is. Yep. It's a special place. Yeah. <laughs> because the whole four years was built around this worldview thinking through. So everything you were learning, even though you mentioned a few specific people, it was the whole process. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, and special, the thing about places like that is that when you're given the freedom to think through things on your own, there may be like, here's kind of the sandbox we're playing in, but how you move through the sandbox is, is really up to you. And so we might hold differing opinions on some really hot button issues, but that's okay because let's talk about it. Let's talk about how we're moving through that. We're not demanding agreement. It's just let's use this sandbox to kind of step into it civilly in a way that allows us to really, really think through it. And so I think that that instilled in me kind of a practice for how I try to move through the world, how I've tried to in the 25 years since I graduated, move through the world in that way. And it can often feel frustrating and disillusioning sometimes to step out of that sandbox and into this new world where people don't necessarily want that, right? Like they <laughs> want agreement. They just, they, their perceptions and their thoughts are so sacred to them that they can't take a breath and step back and say, okay, let's, let's at least understand where this pers this other perspective is coming from. Like we've lost that ability because there's so much noise. There's so much ease to share our thoughts. I was reading, um, I can't remember, I think it was, oh, it was an article in The Atlantic and it was, I can't remember the author, but the title is Why the World is Better Without the Internet. And it was, the author has for the last nine months, he and his wife and little baby child have lived in this home, maybe in the Carolinas somewhere, no internet. He's a journalist. He's a journalist for the Atlantic and probably elsewhere as well. But they wanted, they, they understood the impact of always being on in their lives mm -hmm. and they wanted to be different parents, different spouses. And he said something that was just really interesting. He said, you know, a couple days in, I realized without the internet, I realized that I was re that reading and thinking were a private experience. I was now reading and thinking for myself, not mm. for a quick share or a quick zinger with somebody else. It was a private experience. And that just resonated with me of what does that really, what does that really mean? for reading and thinking to be private experiences. And I think it speaks to giving space and time for the transform the transformative power of reading and thinking through what you're reading to actually take place. And when we do that, like we really do become changed as people. We really do find, like we start expanding as people. And when we allow that expansion to happen, then we can interact with others in a powerful way. But I think because we live in this immediate world, what we read and ultimately then think is never given that time to actually expand within us and do its work. Mm. Yeah, I guess I'm 
just thinking through, just voicing no, through that with you. That's that's really cool, Lindsay. And I, I, because I agree, that's been my experience as a reader and thinker myself. I, early on in this journey, when I was just lost and desperate for healing and wanting to feel better, I would go to the library, spend hours there and just lose myself in books and learning and thinking and pondering and meditating and journaling. I wasn't sharing that with anyone. I was only pursuing the, the gift of the ability to even do that. Like the fact mm -hmm. that we live in a world where I could go to the library, use the internet to find reading lists and find things that were interesting and then just consume these authors throughout history, you know, incredible, mm -hmm. brilliant thinkers. And it was like, I felt they were my mentors. I could sit with them and, and it wasn't, Hey, I just read this book and bleh, and then start arguing with people on Facebook about it. It was, I don't want to be with anyone. I want to be with these thoughts, this, these, the minds of these people and as you said, when we do that, they really do change us. It's because the longer when they're deep thinkers and we interact with their work, the longer we're away from it, it's like that work seeps deeper and we'll, we'll be moving through the world. And when we're present, there are things that, oh, wait, I remember this thought as I was reading that book. And now I'm looking at this interaction and it's making me think about it differently than I would prior to reading that work or something yes. like that. Absolutely. That's the that's the experience, right? I think that's to me what you're describing is that that space that allows us to as opposed to which is what we do now. We consume information to have another badge, to have another thing that to to show the external world of how smart I am or how intelligent I am or how right I am mm -hmm. and it just becomes a way to trounce people out in the world as opposed yep. to growing for the sake yes. of growth and knowledge. Yes. You know, and I think thinking back to me talking to you about Colson's book and how there's there's things in there now, like scientific things that I'm like, mm, that, that rebuttal isn't quite accurate or just reminds me that very rarely do I ever read anything and agree 100% with what I'm reading, right? That there are pieces where I'm like, ah, I think you're a little off there or... Mm, I, I like what you're saying, but I, I can't, I just can't swallow that piece, whatever it is. But I still walk away with like an armload of insights that I, that I can really value. And I think that that teaches something in interactions with real humans then that I don't have to agree with a hundred percent of what you're saying. I might think you're crazy in 10% of what you're having to say, but I can, the 90%, I can nod in agreement and, and really resonate. And that's what stepping into that private world of reading and thinking maybe teaches and allows for that we're getting further and further away from that practice and losing that ability. Well, honestly, that's one of the big motivations behind my show is that I've seen this too, our inability to think, to have conversations, to have dialogues, specifically with people that you don't agree with. That is very enriching. And we're getting more and more extreme in our viewpoints because we go into these echo chambers. We only consume information that we agree with. Anything that steps outside of that worldview, we disregard, we throw away, we attack. And that's only making us weaker as people, though. And it, it's there's so much value in stretching our minds, considering, and you said it earlier, considering the other. 
and recognizing I can't tell you how much I don't agree with in the world, Lindsay. My wife right now, this is a prime example. My wife right now, she's a nerd and she loves history. And she's working and she'll, depending on the work she's doing with her blog, she'll listen to YouTube videos. And something that she's been doing is listening to these narratives around specific high-ranking leaders in the Nazi movement. Not because she's, obviously it's appalling, but what she's, what she's finding though is there's all these threads in these individuals' lives that make that challenge the the narrative that we've talked about for so long. Oh, the Nazis are all this, and it's it's terrible what they've done. But there's always a thread of humanity in everything. And that stretching ability, the ability to consider, to to challenge our biased information or closed off information, when we flex that muscle. It enables a larger empathetic response. It allows us to see where things could be coming from. And it also protects us from those future mistakes. Like that's what, Mm. for her, it's being driven by understanding how can something so horrific happen to an entire nation of people? How can millions of people fall in line with what we know to be, looking back, a horrible atrocity of humanity? Millions of people perished because of this worldview that they shared and but we're at a point now where even thinking about that is like ah no how dare you Mm -hmm. and and that's Mm -hmm. dangerous because ironically Lindsay, that's what created that is that they weren't allowed to talk they weren't allowed to discuss anybody that had alternative views were jailed or killed or whatever because debate and discussion is so critical in my mind not to get constitutional, but that's why the First Amendment is free speech. It's the Mm -hmm. ability to speak freely. And there's a dignified component to being able to openly dialogue with a fellow human being and respecting their humanity. Even Mm -hmm. if you disagree with everything they say in their entire worldview, there's a dignity and decency that comes with saying, I'm going to honor you as a human. For me, that's a spiritual component. We're a spiritual family. Whether they believe that or not, that's the way I'm going to engage. It's just you you never know what can come from that. And so much healing and separate divisions and all these things have been healed over time because people had the courage to set aside those differences and learn about the other, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a Plato's allegory of the cave is probably my favorite story mm-hmm. to reflect on and to tell. And I know that there are uh, some really smart philosophical ways to step into that allegory and talk about what does this really mean and what is he really talking about. But if the listeners aren't familiar with it, I'll just tell the story real quick. So, you know, imagine yourself in ancient Greece, eons, you know, millennia ago, and there you stumble upon this cave. And inside the cave are three men who have been, who are chained to the walls of the cave. They were born there. They've never been outside of the cave. All that they know of the outside world is learned from the shadows that are cast onto the cave wall. And in the shadows, they can see pictures of men and horses and carts and things like that. But they don't ever really know what those are because they've never been outside of the cave. So the only sense that they can make of those shadows are the stories that they create and the truths that they create in their own minds. One day, one of these men escapes. He gets free. And he runs out of the cave and he instantly realizes like the light of the day hits his eyes and he is 
floored. Like, oh my gosh, everything I thought was true isn't. Like, I'm in the light now and I see what's true. And he's so overcome by what he knows is now true that he runs back into the cave to tell his his friends, guys, you aren't going to believe what I saw. Like what we have been looking at all this time, it's not real. Like, let me tell you what is true. And instead of embracing him and understanding he has seen the light, he has seen what is true. They get mad. They get angry. They plot his demise. They want to kill this guy because they just want him to shut up. And I think of that often of so many of us are trapped inside our own caves. We are content. We have been lulled to sleep by looking at the shadows of what is true. And we're just seeing mere shadows making sense, being content with what we believe is true, with our own understandings. Um, And so if we really want to step into the full realness of what it means to be human. We have to be brave enough to unshackle ourselves from the walls that we've chained ourselves to and step into the light and really analyze what is actually in front of us instead of what we have constructed in our own minds. And I just think that's such a powerful analogy for that understanding and to really think about what what are the caves that we have stepped into? What are the caves willingly and unwillingly? Like, what are the caves that we are inside? And are we giving ourselves space and permission and courage, really, to say, is that, sh- is that real or is that a shadow of the truth? And how do I, how do I actually find the real truth? I, I love that because it's it's there's a reason that it's been prominent for so long that that allegory is so powerful because it reflects that deeper to me that is the life that we live and that's the idea of awakened or asleep like the mm-hmm. idea of enlightenment I've talked about this a little bit on the show before enlightenment for me is not having all the answers all of a sudden it's just being present with the moment present with life realizing that this isn't the totality of our experience we're in these vessels, our spirits are in these vessels exploring this world and we're learning about the world around us. But it's so easy to get caught in, this is the reality, there's nothing beyond this, that's the cave, right? We're shackled to our bodies, we're, we're unconscious of the world that's right in front of us. And I think, Lindsay, in so many ways, that's fear running the show. That's, that's our animal nature dominating our worldview, our experience. So much of us, and I've been in that space at points in my life where I've been very fear-driven. And that's where that's one of the things that having a relationship with our creator and faith has changed my life is I don't feel that same fear-driven way of living now because of the courage that I find from our creator. And when you look at the prophets throughout history, regardless of what your religious viewpoint may be, they all went against the narrative at the times were challenging the perspectives of those times and courageously stood in their truth because they had experienced something that they had to share. And the people that felt truth in that resonated with it and changed. And then the others stayed shackled to the cave, as you said, in that fear-based way of operating. And when you look at our world now, especially now, it's always been like this. It's just on view now because of the internet and technology. We see it so much more. But 
those two divergent ways of it, they're ways of living, they're philosophical ways of living. And that's what I love about doing this. I think it's great. The work that you're doing with like the cool thing about what you're doing in this discussion, Lindsay, is you're giving a great example of, I imagine what a lot of your clients get when they're working with you, because you have to challenge worldviews. You have to help them gain clarity around authentic purpose, the, the, the work that you do with your, with storytelling, but whether you're an entrepreneur working for another company, these threads remain true for us, no matter what, because it's that understanding of our own worldview and our values and living the courageous, heroic journey is really what it's about. There's, I've found personally, and I'm sure you can attest to this too, there's no better way of living than the hero's journey, the courageous path of, of living your own truth, challenging the world as it is, and finding the fulfillment of discovery. Absolutely. Yep. So, Lindsay, for work, you, in your work, at the, the work you do as a, a storyteller, you, you mentioned Donald Miller. So did, did you go through some of his training? I haven't. No. Nope. nope. I I always say I was a Donald Miller fan before he became a marketing guru, and then he oh. became a marketing guru and broke my heart. So oh. I, found, I found Donald Miller at really kind of an existential point in my life. My um, cousin, who was like a brother to me, died by suicide. And then oh, about 18 months later, my husband's um, brother lost his daughter to SIDS. And so I was at this, this real existential point, like, what on earth is what is this? You know, what are we doing? And what are we believing in? This is just nuts. And read Miller's Blue Like Jazz and then A Thousand Miles in a Million Years, I think that's the name of his other book that I read. And it was just a real kind of, it created a broader perspective for me to kind of move through my own faith journey and to understand, okay, there's a little more space for people like me who, who embrace the doubting Thomas, who who don't so easily just believe all all of this. Like it's a it's it's not always easy, um, and there's space for that, and that's okay. Like that doesn't make me um, an apostate, right? Like I I can do this, and so so yeah, that that. That's the Donald, when I talk about Donald Miller, that's who I talk about. He's something else now. And and no, I don't do story brand. While his whole process is built around Joseph's camp, Joseph Campbell's mm. hero's journey. All yep. he did was simplify it and and modernize it. It's not like he created something new. And while that's- And Lindsay, to be fair, really, I never read his book. Sorry to interrupt. I, uh, I haven't read okay. his book. I've just, I know of him, but yeah, but anyway. Yeah, it's it's helpful. It's helped a lot of people. It is a really helpful framework. Um, but to me, what happens, and this is kind of the process of my own work, um, It's in, my work is informed by a, a philosophical principle called phenomenology, and it's all about the lived experience. And it what it really does is it says, let's hold off on the frameworks because frameworks- don't inform the human experience. They are informed by the human experience. And what I have found is we too often lead with the framework. We let that kind of create the experience, create the stories for us. And we wind up having stories that don't resonate. They don't authentically express who we actually are, what we actually believe, because they don't allow us to do that deep inner work that we need to do. 
And so while frameworks like StoryBrand are, they're super helpful. I'm not, I wouldn't ever tell anybody, no, don't use that. But what starts to happen is you can, you can, I can identify a story brand website anywhere, right? They all look the same. And so you all, you have a brand that looks just like somebody else's because you've, you let the framework lead you. Now, what might happen if you do the, the deep work first and then rely on the framework, you might get an entirely different output, but that's not what's happening. People are letting the framework, whether it's Donald Miller or anybody else, they're letting frameworks lead them and they're just blindly following them instead of really understanding who am I? Why am I here? What's gone wrong with my world? And what is my responsibility and my unique calling to fix that? And they don't do that work first before they start to fill in those gaps of the framework. Mm. So is that where you start with your clients is you start in that space effectively as you get to the core of those three questions, you, you work yes. to, to yep. uncover that? Yeah, I call it the two-story method because it's really looking at what we all have an inside story and we have an outside story. The outside story is kind of all of those things like what do others think of us? How do I want to show up in my market space? Like what's my end goal? What's, you know, all of those things that we as business owners and entrepreneurs think through. That's the outside story that often drives us. Like we think about what's my end goal? What do I need? What are the things I need to put in place to meet my metrics, to meet my revenue? But there's also the inside story, which is really that understanding of who am I in the first place? How, how am I informing the values and the culture that I want to want to build and create and sustain? Why am I doing this to begin with? Not just that that really soft why, but that true why am I doing this? What why have I been uniquely called in this moment at this time to do this thing? What do I believe? All of those things. And so when you when you start there, then you can bring that outside story in and merge those two together and really have a story and share a story and create a business and a culture that is truly reflective of who you are, where you want to go, truly honoring of all of the people that you're bringing in with you to do the thing. And it's easier to stay grounded and on track when life throws a gigantic rock in your entrepreneurial path. And it's like, now what? Because that's going to happen. You're grounded then and, well, this is who I am. So this is where we're going to go. As opposed to without that grounding, it becomes really scary and really rocky. Like we saw that happen with COVID. We saw people immediately upended because they were stepping into hard conversations without that foundational understanding of who am I and how, what does that mean about how I'm going to step into this conversation, even if I'm going to step in at all. So yeah, that's a, a little bit of the work that I do. That's awesome. I'm, I'm curious like what some of the limitations may be that you see with your clients and how you help them overcome some of these bridges? Because it sounds like you do the, you get into the heavy work first, because otherwise mm -hmm. the other stuff is really, it's not going to be as sticky to your point, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think one big limitation that I might see is just the limitation of perspective. We either have an, an I perspective or a strong they perspective. And so somebody might build their business or their brand messaging around one of those perspectives more than the other. Like, 
I, I'm going to say this or I'm going to offer this service because I, this, that's what I would want or that's what I, this is what I think is best or I'm, I'm going to do this because this is what they are telling me to do. You name whoever they is, whether it's the marketing experts or the audience you think that you know. And so there's not a lot of challenging and balancing of those perspectives. And that's where the inside and outside story, that two-story method really comes into play because it's, okay, now we have a really clear understanding on who you are and why you're this way and what you believe. Now let's see if you're living it out. Let's actually see what they have to say about you, how they experience you. And let's balance those two out because now you're able to see the gaps or the misunderstandings and really understand where you need to direct your next step. I always say that story's job is to do two things. First, our audience is stepping in saying, who are you? Who are you? Do I want to join you? Like, are you even somebody I can know, like, and trust? So we have to answer that one first. And I think that we often inherently get that. Like, I need to, I need to tell the world who I am. But then the next thing that story needs to do is help our audience answer, who will I become when I join you? Like, that's the transformation piece. Like, mm. who am I truly going to become? It's not about what you offer. It's not about just, you know, the, the final destination. We really now, as audience members, want to know, like, what's our part in the journey? How am I going to be changed? How am I going to be impacted? You can't answer those questions without doing that deep inner story work and outer story work. The two are necessary to do together. So that perspective and really challenging those biases and assumptions, like we're really good at thinking we're right and that we know what we know. And so having somebody to help you step back gently and kind of get out of your own way is really crucial. That's fantastic. And it's, again, those two kind of dynamic ways of living, Lindsay, are presenting themselves in a sense of a destination-focused living where you're only thinking about the destination that you're driving towards versus the journey that you're on. And you're mm -hmm. present on that journey and you're in the journey, just as that last point that you said about the audience's journey as they go along with you. That's incredible. That was a really fast hour, by the way. It, <laughs> it was. Went really it fast. Was. <laughs> um, I love that though, because I think it's, it's, it's teasing out a good bit of the work that you do. You've exemplified the prowess and depth that you have to the work that you're doing in this conversation anyway. So I'm hoping that anyone that may be interested in working with you, they're going to reach out if they are. So two things though, before I end every conversation, if you will, how can anyone get in touch with you? And then a parting message that you'd like to share with the audience. Oh, goodness. So they can always find me online at storyhouse15.com. And will you put that in the show notes? Yeah, I'll get all the stuff in the show yeah. notes. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also on LinkedIn and I have a newsletter there as well that they can stop by and follow and just get deep thoughts like this. Parting thoughts. Oh, my goodness. You really put me on the spot. I guess I'll say this. What a big piece of my work started out when I kind of really started getting into this and you know, throughout the years has been kind of this exploration of authenticity and what does it really mean to be authentic. And we hear a lot about this, this word, you know, authenticity and to, to like ad nauseum. It's just, you know, <laughs> overused and overexploited. And a big piece of my work when I 
when I dove into what is authenticity, you know, we've been talking about it since Aristotle, but really it wasn't until the 2000s to social scientists, Curtis and Goldman showed up on scene and really said, we're going to flesh this out and try to get an understanding of what it is. And there's a lot that they said and a lot of their work that it, I now use and take my clients through pieces of this work. But the thing that really uh, resonated with me and I, I often use as a pushback when I hear conversations about authenticity is that we often think authenticity is about like being your best self or kind of living in perfection of your own self-knowledge and kind of always walking that straight path and never veering off. Like you don't want to be the hypocrite. If, if you make a decision that's against your values, well, you're not being authentic. And that, according to Curtis and Goldman, actually isn't true. Authenticity is really about committing to the journey and recognizing that there are going to be times where you get off track and having that self-knowledge and that other knowledge to recognize I'm off track. What do I need to do to realign? Or maybe showing up as this version of Lindsay with her fiery belly in this space isn't the most well-serving way to show up as Lindsay in this space. It's not best for Lindsay. It's not best for Brandon or you know whatever space I'm in. That doesn't mean that I'm inauthentic. It just means I'm showing up in a way that is best serving for everybody and for, for the end goal. And so authenticity is really about understanding what your values are, being taking actually the action that you need to live out those values. So we all hear people who say, hey, I value X, Y, and Z, but then when we peer into their lives or our own, we realize I'm actually not living that out at all. So it's not a value. And so really being taking action on those values, living them out, doing the hard work. I say, if, if, you're, if your values that you claim don't like hurt, don't cause you pain, don't cause you consternation, they're probably not your values. Like they're just something that's really easy to live out. How honest are we about our own biases and assumptions? And then the last piece is, are we building open, sincere, honest communities and relationships with others? And it's really like a flywheel. It's, it's one thing that pushes on another and leads and leads and leads. And so just stepping into that cycle and going through it, that's, that's what it really means to be an authentic human, an authentic business owner is committing to that journey and that cycle and realizing it's just a constant process. Oh, I love it. So well said. That's fantastic, Lindsay. What what a huge amount of wisdom to part at the end of the show here. <laughs> I really appreciate that. That's fantastic. Well, Lindsay, this has been a pleasure. Really fast hour. I really enjoyed chatting with you. We got in the weeds on some things, so hopefully the audience enjoyed that. So again, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having and me. It's great. Of course, my pleasure. And to the audience, certainly appreciate your eyes, your ears, your attention, especially in a world that we live in now. Everyone's vying for it. So if you enjoyed this conversation between Lindsay and myself, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and follow along on the journey. We got many more great conversations coming along. So until next time, y'all. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Order Within. If you found the episode helpful, please consider sharing, rating, and subscribing. New episodes will be released every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Until next time, y'all.